Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week's episode with Melissa Schilling will absolutely shatter any of your perceptions of what makes a person successful. Learn how some of the most notoriously accomplished innovators exhibited a common set of character traits. Schilling's obsession with the topic led her to research eight of these complex minds and personalities. As an NYU professor and author of numerous technology, innovation, and strategy books, Schilling is way overqualified for our podcast. Take advantage by scratching that intellectual itch and implement some of her surprising takeaways today. This is episode 247. Nation, what is up? This is a very ecstatic Luke Summers sitting with a Chris McQuilkin and John Wellborn in a heated, a gas-heated barn in 30-degree weather in central Texas. Yeah, you know, I, th- I kind of wrestled a little bit with some of the fire hazards about having uh, propane heaters <laughs> indoors, but, uh, you know... In a, uh, with the cedar ceiling. <laughs> with the cedar ceiling. I mean, it could be, it's a big Roman candle, but you know what? Fuck it. But I'm going to, you know, like I've maybe said before on this podcast or not, I'm the type of guy that really likes to just make things, take a risk. Like, I wish this was an open flame, like we had a fire pit in here. You know, maybe some smoke inhalation. Really, it's really... Pre- when did you ever rails. say that you were going to... I ride the guardrails, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that you would take a risk. I'm Mr. Risky. Uh, eh. Maybe with like unprotected sex. Yes. No, well, not even that way. Either, yeah, right? sure. I mean, what, what, there's protected sex? Is that when you have a bodyguard or a buddy? Do we have like, any this announcements is a bad idea. that we uh, wait, a, wait a minute. Protected sex where Tex is protecting his virginity. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's get Barely. into our announcements. <laughs> All right, ladies Oh, and yeah. Gentlemen. Have we listen, forgot to say listen, that we're actually listen, looking listen. for single ladies uh, to submit their information let's... for uh, Tex to get a date to Luke's wedding? On topic. Let's... Send them in. What's relevant? <laughs> Callie at Power Athlete HQ. Send them. <laughs> All right, listeners. We're just going to get straight to the point. You need to do your warm-ups for the CrossFit Games Open. And if you aren't doing the CrossFit Games Open, you need to warm up for your training properly. Tex has put on a clinic literally across the country. Four of them, I think we did. Four. And, uh, and we put the best version of that clinic out for free on the internet. PAHQ.co slash PA-Academy. It's free, people. It's free. Spoiler alert, we're going to try and upsell you, but you don't have to buy anything to consume the information. That's just how we're told to do business. Try to make a little bit of cash so that we can finally afford heaters in this barn and we don't have to open up a fire pit and a cedar. Or a party barge. Or a party barge. Either way. Both. What do you have to say about the warm-ups, McQuilkin? Uh, Essentially, it's the least valued piece of an athlete's training, but it presents the greatest opportunity to truly unlock athletic potential. It's the one consistent thing that you have, whether it's training, competition, sports practice. So if we can really dial that in, we can put you in a position to decrease injury and enhance performance. If you're an athlete, if you're a coach, if you're following any sort of training, even if it's not power athlete training, you need to dig into this stuff. It, uh, it, is, the, it is the key to the lock that unlocks athletic potential. Ooh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm just going to have to scrub <laughs> Anyways, that one a little bit. Let's barrel forward to our guests because yes. we do have kind of a short timeline today, people. But I want to introduce to you Melissa A. Schilling. So, Melissa, thanks for joining the show. Uh, you know, Texas geared. Texas amped up for this one. Uh, he has not stopped talking about it. Like, I haven't heard him gush like this since uh, ever. So it's I'm in a very uh, exclusive book club of one and I've been uh, (laughs) taking a lot of notes. Sounds Uh, like your dating life. Oh, man, you're killing me. Okay, so I've been diving into Melissa's book. I was fortunate to get an early copy and it it has dropped since this podcast has dropped. So Corky 
And then I love your subline here, your, your, your main title of the book, Corky, and then the subtitle, The Remarkable Story of the Traits, Foliables, I don't even know how to pronounce this word, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Changed the World. It's a pretty so, long title. You have to be smart just to read the title, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't even know what one of those <laughs> words means. But uh, So I, I want to hand off the, the torch to you to have yourself introduced, because I know your experience goes well beyond this book, and I, we're... We are excited to have you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you want me to say something about myself? Is that what you're saying? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And uh, yeah, before I do, I just want to point out that that heater you have there, I'm not sure that's legitimate for indoor use. Oh, yeah. You're definitely right. Yeah. (laughs) Especially not a wood Uh, building. We are kind of in a barn. So technically, (laughs) it is kind of indoor, outdoor living space. All right. All right. (laughs) But uh, if you pass out at some point, I will call 911 for you. Yeah, we'll be Appreciate it. Okay, so I've been a professor of innovation and strategy for over 20 years, and I've studied uh, smartphones. Before there were smartphones, they were called personal digital assistants back then, and video games, computer operating systems, bike componentry. So I'd studied technology and innovation for a really long time, uh, and I have a textbook on innovation and a textbook on strategy. And then around 2010, when Steve Jobs was looking you know, not well, right? He was looking very thin in 2010 and there was a lot of speculation about his health. I started having students come to class and they were asking things like, what's gonna happen at Apple? Like how much of that innovation is in the man versus how much of it is actually in the organization? Is it embedded in the routines and the structure? Is there a successor? Or, or is it truly something magical about Steve Jobs? And I knew the research on creativity and innovation really well, and I knew we didn't have the answer to that, which I found surprising. I really thought I'd be able to go look up some stuff and come back with some sort of a legit answer, but there really wasn't anything on that. And the more I thought about it, first of all, the more intrigued I was. But the second uh, thing I realized is that the question itself, like what makes someone a spectacular innovator, isn't really very conducive to the kind of research that we tend to do. So in in academia or in in science, we tend to like large samples, first of all. You don't get large samples of serial breakthrough innovators, right? Steve Jobs is a really unique person and to find a sample that's gonna have enough people like him in it to tell you something through statistics is, is not likely. And then sometimes we do things in a laboratory, but again, you can't get Steve Jobs and Elon Musk to come spend a couple of days in your laboratory with you. It's just not gonna happen. So basically it was a very difficult question for people to think about answering in a way they could publish uh, you know, in alignment with the way our careers work in our field. But fortunately, I was a full professor, so I just decided to pursue it however I wanted to pursue it. And I started studying just Steve Jobs in the beginning. I, I completely immersed myself, read everything that had been written about him, watched every recorded interview, uh, just devoured any transcript I could find where something was in his own words, because my objective was to understand who he was, like what he was like as a person, what his biases were, what his beliefs were, what his talents were, how he was raised. I really just wanted to understand him. And um, I was on sabbatical, so I took a full year just doing that. And one of the most remarkable things that first came out and it's what ended up inspiring the rest of the research project, was that if you study Steve Jobs, he actually also has a lot of similarities with somebody else I had already written about, which is Dean Kamen. And I don't know if you've heard about Dean Kamen. You actually have, but you don't realize it. So I'm going to first start by saying he's the he created the world's first drug infusion pump, which revolutionized uh, the treatment of diabetes. So if you see someone with a little 
pump attached to them with a mm -hmm. monitor for type 1 diabetes. That's that's basically his invention. Okay. He also came up with the world's first dialysis machine. He invented a bunch of prosthetic arms. He invented the iBot mobility wheelchair, which can climb stairs. So he did all these amazing medical inventions. But the thing you actually know him for is the Segway. So he invented oh, the Segway personal transporter, which is um, actually a, sort of a derived from the iBot wheelchair. Okay. Anyway, if you study Dean Kamen and you study Steve Jobs, you come away thinking, whoa, these guys are alike in really strange ways that you wouldn't have initially guessed had anything to do with innovation. And the moment I saw that, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a multiple case study research project and I don't care what I find out. Maybe I won't find anything interesting or useful, but it's worth doing anyway. And it was just intrinsically interesting to me. So I started gathering information on eight serial uh, breakthrough innovators that are, were profoundly important in history and figuring out what they had in common, what they didn't have in common, and what we could learn from that. And uh, it was the, probably the most fun project I've ever done in my career. And it's the lifeblood of the book, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is the book is uh, has themes, but it's all told through stories. So you learn the the themes of that drive innovation in these people through each individual innovator's story. Um, each uh, each theme, I pick one innovator to kind of highlight that theme, but the innovators actually exhibit all the themes. Uh, and that's kind of the fascinating part. There are some really distinct commonalities these people had, and they are. Uh, things that are actually make them unusual from the general population or things that stood out that people noticed. And, um, and it was funny because some of them, there were just strange little clues. Like it turns out out of the innovators I studied, seven out of eight of them didn't sleep a full night. They slept significantly less than the average population. And at first I had absolutely no reason to think that that could possibly be related to innovation. I assumed that you need a lot of sleep to be an innovator. And the one person who did sleep a full night was Einstein. So I would have thought, yeah, you need a lot of sleep to fuel that big brain. But uh, after studying the innovators more completely, I kind of came to the conclusion that that clue about the sleeping is really a clue about their dopamine levels and slightly modest, modestly elevated dopamine, which made them a little bit manic, which made them feel incredibly driven and tended to obsess on a problem and to be convinced they could solve it. So uh, it, it turned out it was relevant, even though it seemed really peculiar at the time. So we have our, our five characteristics of a creative genius that you outline in the book. So I'd love to introduce those to our audience. Okay, you want me to do it? Sure. Or you're going to do it. Uh, I can. I, we can go back and forth. We can volley this one. Ooh, do it. So first off, we have a sense of separateness. Yeah. And you describe it as a feeling of being disconnected or of not belonging. Yeah. So seven out of the ten innovators, and again, I didn't go looking for this. I was surprised by it. They exhibited this sort of, uh, this is really where the quirky title comes from, uh, an interesting sort of social detachment, this feeling that they didn't belong, that the rules that apply to everybody else didn't really apply to them. And uh, some of them really isolated themselves, like Marie Curie really isolated herself. Some of them exhibited more just in their defiance about uh, rules. So Steve Jobs, for instance, he didn't isolate himself, but he did things that showed that he didn't believe society's rules applied to him. Like he didn't always wear shoes and he didn't always shower. He didn't wear deodorant. So he often had a smell. He would stare intensely at people without blinking and he wouldn't put a license plate on his car. He just decided that those were rules that didn't apply to him, but his ability to reject, uh, reject 
received wisdom or challenge assumptions, that was really hugely important to his ability to be innovative, right? He came up with ideas that other people thought were impossible. And when other people told him that the ideas were stupid or that he was going about them wrong, he ignored them and he charged on fiercely. And um, that's related to a second trait that I think is incredibly important in a bunch of spheres of life, including athleticism, which is self-efficacy. So all of the innovators exhibited extremely high self-efficacy and self-efficacy is a, a specific form of confidence that's related to tasks. It's your belief in your ability to overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. So every single one of the innovators I've studied had this just intense belief that they could do the impossible. And when other people would say it was impossible, their view was, I think I can do it, or it's not impossible for me. Uh, and that ends up being incredibly empowering, right? People can actually do a lot more than they believe they can do a lot of the time. And there are really cool ways you can build people's sense of self-efficacy. And uh, once you increase someone's self-efficacy, they're more likely to initiate, uh, um, they're, they're more likely to engage with a tough problem. They're more likely to stick with it, even when the going gets tough. And they're less likely to uh, take in criticism from other people about it, right? They become more resilient. So it's, it's an incredibly important trait and we can teach people to have more of it. So you know, that's a wonderful thing. And next up we have keenly idealistic. Yeah. So again, seven out of eight. Uh, so this time the outlier was Thomas Edison. The other seven all were really focused on an idealistic goal. So they saw some goal that they thought was intrinsically noble and important. And it was so important that it was often more important than themselves, right? It was more important than comfort or leisure or money or family time. Uh, and it kept them incredibly focused. It kept them incredibly motivated because they thought it was so important. And again, it also provided a form of ego defense. So if you look at someone like Elon Musk, Elon Musk has all these achievements, right? He also has an enormous number of haters, right? There are lots of people who for one reason or another wanna see him fail. They don't think the electric vehicles are a good idea or they think the rocket idea was preposterous. Um, in the beginning, the entire space industry told them it wasn't possible. You cannot make reusable rockets. We've tried for 50 years, and you're not going to saunter in here and do it. And he said, you know what? I think I can do it. And he did it. And uh, that's a pretty amazing thing, right? And next we have remarkably exceptional memory, Luke Summers. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> So, so one of the things that, that is difficult to emulate in this set of people is they were all extremely intelligent and they were known for having exceptional memories. And for technology and science innovators, that turns out to be extremely useful, like Nikola Tesla and Elon Musk could both do advanced physics and calculus in their head in real time, right? They didn't even need to write it down because they could think so many steps out. And Kimball Musk even observed about, Kimball's his brother, Kimball observed about Elon one time, you know, Elon's always thinking like 10 steps ahead. So he's seeing outcomes you haven't even thought about yet, mm -hmm. you know, which is uh, a really cool way to be a big thinker. And what is our, our fifth characteristic of creative genius? Okay, so the fifth one that uh, we haven't mentioned has to do with the joy of work. Um, and I've been using this analogy, and somebody pointed out to me that a lot of people may not know dogs well enough to get this analogy. I'm a dog person. Do, do any of you guys like Love dogs? Them. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I have two dogs. You have two dogs. So have you ever encountered a Border Collie? Have any of you ever had any familiarity mm -hmm. with yeah. a Border Collie dog? Oh, yeah. So 
So it's a herding dog and it is a manically intense, energetic, smart herding dog, like herds sheep, right? Or and, cows. And will herd kids if you put it in front of kids. Like, and uh, ducks yeah. and chickens. Yeah, anything. It will herd anything. <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing about these dogs is they don't really have to be trained to herd and they don't have to be rewarded to herd because the work itself is the reward for them. Mm-hmm. They love to do it and they are never happier than when, when they're working hard. And there's a, there's a saying among dog people that if you don't give a border collie a job, it's going to find its own job and you won't like it. So, <laughs> yeah. so they're not always great house pets because they need to work all the time. But the innovators had this too, Right? This love of being busy, of having a challenge that was at that level where it stretched them, you know, not so hard that it completely thwarted them, but not easy either. They wanted to they wanted to fight against something. And, um, you know, finding that thing in your life that gives you that joy of working hard is extremely important and valuable. It'll it'll just make you work harder and, and love it. So as you were going through and coming through and finding these themes, these characteristics, were there any that were B list or C list where you thought it were they were this was this was one of those characteristics, but then you realized like ah, it didn't really fit the puzzle, or did they, these all just show themselves to you? Um, you mean were there something I eliminated along the way? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So in the beginning, I thought, um, you know, a lot of people have written about birth order and how it's supposed to affect your personality and your drive. And, you know, there were certainly a few people in the set that adhered to the norms of the birth order. But then if you go and you track it down to everybody, and by the way, you have to be careful because for some of the older innovators, they might only mention your birth order of the sons and not actually indicate the daughters. And yet you have to track that down, right? That's important too. And so end up finding the birth order had, I, I don't see any relationship with birth order in my set. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? You know, one of the things that was really counterintuitive for me is, uh, so there's two things that are really counterintuitive. For one, I'm a business school academic, right? And we tend to think that, you know, one of the things that'll really be an advantage for innovation is having access to capital. So you should have these strong social networks and maybe personal wealth in your family, or you should know rich people, or you should have, you should have money because money helps you to execute things, right? These people did not have access to capital. Universal. None of them came from money, not a single one. They all started with almost nothing. They also had relatively poor social networks. And this goes back to this sense of separateness. They were socially awkward. They were a little disconnected. A lot of them didn't really like to socialize. So capital and social networks really were not a key part of their story. And that was very counterintuitive for, for you know, for someone at a business school who's actually studied networks. Mm-hmm. And then as you, you know, as you evaluate the life cycle of these guys and as they grow into these innovators or hit these milestones of innovation, were these characteristics always present, you know, in adolescence and childhood, things like that? So definitely uh, you see the separateness in them early on. In fact, Elon Musk, Einstein uh, were both thought to be uh, maybe deaf or maybe autist, a little bit autistic. They both spent a lot of time staring into space, not playing with the other kids. Thomas Edison actually was quite deaf. And, you know, he was kept out of school. When, when, he was, when Thomas Edison was born, he had this abnormally large head. And doctors thought there's something clearly wrong with this kid. So they didn't send him to school. And then when they finally uh, did send him to school, within the first few days, the teachers decided he was too distractible and didn't pay attention, so they sent him back home. So this is a kid who really never went to school. Uh, 
you know, in, in part because he had a big head and, and later on, you know, he was mostly deaf. And so he didn't like social situations. But yeah, you see the separateness very early. You also saw the intelligence extremely early. Now, a lot of them didn't do well in school. And this is a really interesting part, like a, like a, almost all of them struggled with school in some way. Like even the ones that got grad school, got graduate degrees, had conflict with their teachers and maybe didn't get great grades or dropped out at the very last minute. And I really think that this goes back to this rule-defying nature. They needed to do things at their own pace. They wanted to study what they wanted to study, and they wanted to go as deep and as far as they wanted. And a, a, a syllabus or a curriculum defined by somebody else was too constraining for them. So a lot of them did not have good educational records at all. Like Einstein actually vigorously resented school. His teachers disliked him. It's the reason that even when he got his PhD, he couldn't get a job as an academic for a very long time because all of the professors he had worked with wrote bad letters about him. They, they really found him to be disrespectful and uh, and yet, look, he's one of the most brilliant people of our, of all time. So, you know, did you find a, a like that. Oh, did, did you find a difference when dealing with uh, people, obviously, like, you know, you're researching like historical accounts for like Einstein and Tesla and these guys opposed from people that are presently still alive. I just wonder if there's like a social. You know, yeah. Like, like if it becomes, I don't know, uh, like almost like a control for your study. If like, hey, you know, here I'm reading historical accounts of people that might have been you know, a hundred years old opposed from people that I can actually look at today. And did you actually uh, get to meet with anybody? Like, did you get to like interview anybody in person and kind of get a, a you know, one-to-one -one on any of it? Yeah. So let me say that when I started, um, being, being sort of a researcher by training, I laid out criteria that I was going to use to select the people that I studied. And I needed to have the criteria defined before I picked out people because you don't want to inadvertently impose your bias on the people you pick out, right? Like if I already, if I knew I wanted them to have crazy stories, I would have been picking out crazy innovators. Even if I tried not to, it would be their you know, subconsciously. So I laid out criteria and then I followed those criteria. And I have to say one the one of the biggest disappointments to me about following those criteria is I only got one woman and I got no people of color. And that was really frustrating to me. And I toyed with going back into the most famous female inventor sites or the most uh, famous uh, African-American inventors. There, there are lists of these, but but I would have been biasing the, the set. And then the more I studied them, the more I understood how this set came to be. Because when you get into the list, I had, one of my criteria was that you had to be on multiple most famous innovator lists. And you also had to have multiple biographies written about you. And one of the things that did was it tended to, um, you know, people are looking across time, right? All of history, which means the, the time period in which you could have had uh, women or African-American inventors or getting even into advanced degrees is relatively small, right? It's relatively recent that women had access to education the way men did. And it's actually relatively recent that African-Americans had access to education the way uh, that, that other people did. Uh, although a lot of the inventors in my set are from Europe and, and places like that. And Elon Musk, of course, is from South Africa. But there's a long way of saying the criteria limited who I could look at. And one of the limits, because I wanted to have multiple biographies, because I didn't want to be unduly influenced by one person's account, that excluded a whole bunch of people. It excluded people who are very recent, for instance. Like I would have loved to have looked at Sergey Brin or Larry Page, but they don't really have biographies written about them yet. 
I, w- I was curious about Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, but again, no biography written about her. And I don't know if she would have qualified the other criteria either. So I guess the point that I'm saying is that there's this window. I also couldn't look at Leonardo da Vinci because one of my criteria was that there had to be first person accounts quotes, right? And there's not a lot of first person accounts of Leonardo da Vinci because he's too far back. So I end up with everybody being between, let's say the late 1800s, well actually late 1700s for Benjamin Franklin up to the most contemporary one is Elon Musk. Okay, so the two of the people that I was studying who are still alive are Elon Musk and Dean Kamen. And I sent multiple, multiple messages and phone calls to those guys and couldn't get into either one of them. But now I'm finally going to meet Dean Kamen, uh, I think within the next few months, I'm supposed to do something with his first institute. Yeah, these people have gatekeepers, and I think they get a lot of people trying to reach out to them, and it's hard for them to sort the wheat from the chaff, and who even knows what pile it would have fell into on that story. Sure. So a lot of these characteristics, they, they feel like a, the, the inventors, they were born that way. So a big, big question I have for you is, are these traits innate? Can, can we kind of put kids nowadays in place to learn these traits, or are they just kind of born to, and destined to be these innovators? Okay, so um, one of the things, so some of them aren't, some of them aren't things you're born with. Being idealistic is something you learn and and have modeled for you. And self-efficacy is also something you learn and have modeled for you. There may be some traits that you're born with that make you more inclined to have high self-efficacy, but it can absolutely be learned. It can be learned through things like early wins and hero stories. And uh, humans are really good vicarious learners. So, uh, we're, we're a social species, right? And, and one of the key ways we figure out what we can eat and what we can do and what's going to kill us is by watching what other people eat and what they can do and what killed them. And so you can actually teach people to have more faith in what they're capable of by sharing hero stories with them, especially hero stories that they can identify with, right? So you get people talking about other people who overcome big obstacles and what they achieved. And in doing that, we learn something about ourselves. So, so, so those things can absolutely be learned. And then I would also say some of the things that even seemed innate in the innovators still have mechanisms we can tap without having the underlying trait. So for instance, I'll give you a great example. These innovators, they often had this, I mentioned sort of sense of separateness. For one reason or another, they didn't feel connected to people. And, and sometimes it was physical, like they were, you know, could be deaf. And Charles Darwin had anthrophobia, which is some sort of condition. Uh, Marie Curie's mother died when she was very young and sent her spiraling into a depression. So sometimes it's external, sometimes it's an internal. But the mechanism by which that separateness leads to innovation is something any of us can take advantage of. And, and it's two main things. The first one is that people need some time alone. They need some time to think and read and write and figure out what they believe and follow their own cognitive paths of association without being constrained by group norms. This is one of the reasons why brainstorming teams don't really work because brainstorming teams kind of bring everybody to a mediocre compromise, right? When, when, when one person is talking, it hijacks your thinking. You, you can't even think your thought out when somebody else is talking, right? So you lose a lot of that creativity. People need a chance to work alone, especially kids you know, they need, they need some downtime. It can't all be sports. It can't all be glee club and debate and things that build charisma and social skills. They need some time to figure out who they are and the way they think the world works and to be encouraged to believe that maybe the rules that other people believe in are not rules they need to believe in. So that relates to the second piece. 
challenge assumptions. Steve Jobs, one of the most valuable things Steve Jobs did, I don't know if he was born with it or if he learned it, but he just decided, hey, just because you say things are this way, I don't necessarily believe that. I don't believe that that's necessarily true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try my own way, right? Don't assume that the things, the way that the way the world works around you right now is the way it has to work. Like right now, if I look outside my office, I see cars on the street, and so maybe I assume that cars have to ro roll on wheels on a street. Well, that's just an assumption. What if cars were suspended from rails? What if they didn't have wheels? What if they ha were in pneumatic tubes, the way Elon Musk is envisioning? challenge every assumption. That's the reason separateness works. And you don't have to be separate to do that. And I think this is where we get into our flat earth discussion, Tex. <clears throat> of why not? <laughs> you're a flat earther? <laughs> we're we're uh, assuming the world is round? Uh, dude, uh, the thing which I love the most was uh, watching all these, you know, different pictures of having the SpaceX and the, you know, the, the going up. Yeah, and, the the, and, yeah. and then they're showing the Tesla. And all of these flat earth people are literally jumping fake. over it and being like, it's fake. It's green screen. This never happened. It and, does. And I'm like... I think people saw, I mean, there were people viewing, like I saw like, you know, we weren't there, but I saw live video of people, you know, watching it go up Fake. and they're like, oh, it's just going behind the clouds and then they bring it down. And I'm like, I would. Uh, so hang on. We don't know. Uh, maybe Melissa's a flat earth girl. We can't make uh, assumptions. I'm not a flat earth girl. Glober. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think it's interesting that, that people would challenge that right, right. And, uh, <laughs> of all things of, of all well okay, okay here's my one thing right every planet that we can see is round yeah. but we're looking at it from the top view john well so so what they just spin and they all just have to magically through just chance be mm -hmm. facing us like we would never see from the side and be like oh look it's flat like, right. you know what it is though what you're missing here and it's the same reason some people think we never went to the moon and some people think that the nazi holocaust never happened there are people who are fundamentally distrustful of the information that they get from others right they feel like they're being deceived on some massive scale uh well i mean think about the large scale uh like the, the large scale you would have to go like the, to logistically. To, no, I mean, yeah. the, but think about like just the flat Earth thing. So not only would you have to, I mean, we can't keep a secret. So you would have to get everybody in NASA and all the Russians to basically uh, perpetuate this idea of the Earth being round and all the uh, thousands of people that have worked China on this as well, and China and all these things, mm -hmm. and they'd be like, okay, shh. But then, and my shh. thing is, uh, <laughs> yeah, shh, don't worry, we're gonna the figure globe. it out. At the wait, end of the day, wait. like I think every conspiracy has to, uh, for a conspiracy to actually be accurate, it has to have somebody benefiting it. Like, um, you know, like I, I love like the people that are like, oh, the Holocaust never happened. And then the guy who was the first American that uh, actually was one of my teammates in, uh, in the NFL, one of his football coaches was the guy who literally showed up as the first American at Auschwitz and went in and like they stormed and he like they kicked in the gate and he told like recounted the story. And he's like, no, it happened. I was there. I saw it. Like we saw everything. And these people are like, no, it didn't exist. And you're like, if you have first-hound accounts, I mean, like, where, like, it, it just, to me, it's people that are denying things for their own personal benefit. And I, I'm like, dude, regardless of whether or not it benefits you or not, like, the, the truths are truths. So I don't know. But, but bringing it back into conversation, I guess, is that there there can be value in a tactful. Um, well, we do it all the time. Filter of. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, Luke's, and this goes back to. Uh, I guess one of your lists of what business leaders can do to help their teams be more innovative is have 
that tenth man, the guy that mm-hmm. just disagrees no matter what, to then kind of, you know, but within like a, a tactful stern, yeah. and well thought out way, right? Just yeah. uh, let's think of a different way. Or is it really true? Is it the best way, right? So yeah, well, not too early though. You know, one of the things I think uh, thwarts brainstorming teams is I think there's a fair number of people who are conflict avoidant, and so they'll start making concessions to smooth things out. And some of those concessions, we don't actually want them to make. Like one of the, one of the beautiful things about Steve Jobs, which also made him a pain in the ass, is that he never made concessions. Yeah. Even when he finally did come around to your point of view, he would just say it was his point of view all along. Weird. You know? I've never <laughs> had that in our organization. <laughs> I've never done it. <laughs> you do. What? Yeah, I go, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> So, so on the one hand, we tend to say we want, uh, you know, we we tend to say we want groups with creative conflict, but we have to remember that some people don't have a high threshold, are, are uncomfortable with conflict, mm-hmm. and so you need to let them have time to let their ideas grow and be nurtured and really be fleshed out and laid down on paper. Allow them to develop some commitment to that idea before you expose them to com- conflict, because some people will get scared right off with the conflict. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other end of that spectrum. There's got to be the other end of the spectrum. And I feel like I fall on this because Tex is a slow thinker and you're not a conflict avoidant. I think you're fine. Maybe you are. I don't know. But I'll ask him to like push back on something because it helps me. It helps provoke thought in my creative process, whatever, however far it goes. But I I feel like I benefit from that. And I, I strive and want that in a discussion or brainstorming session. Maybe you're right. It is later on after you know, fleshing out some thought process, but, but I, I'd like that because then it helps bulletproof whatever we do. Cause we, we have to go present a lot of information and I mean, strength and conditioning it's training, dogmatic and it's very dogmatic and a lot of emotion involved in it. Well, performance is our caliber. We're going to help. What, yeah. We're going to do whatever helps the athlete. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we need to be prepared to argue with coaches constructively. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it comes down to the idea of, uh, um, you know, and we've seen this for years is people get stuck in these paradigms where like, this is the way we've done it. And there's no other way that this can be done. Yeah. And, uh, we look at it from like, if you're the, the minute that you say that this is the only way it can be done, you've effectively failed because now you're not looking for different ways to maximize performance. So what I did is I went to the performance camp and I told these people the other day at a deal and they all laughed that I'm a performance whore. I just want to make the best. And uh, the other thing which is really interesting and not to kind of deviate this a little bit, but um, as I was sitting there listening to you talk about uh, these different innovators, I sometimes wonder if there is kind of a break between innovator and leader. That, uh, that a lot of these innovators and a lot of the traits that you're talking about for these people that are kind of revolutionary innovators aren't necessarily the traits that you would want in terms of like a CEO Absolutely. or a leader for the company. So Steve Jobs was an incredible innovator, awful CEO. And, uh, you know, I mean, like, you know, the stories endlessly about... You know, I think sometimes as a, you know, as a leader or a CEO, you sometimes have to like see the general good and like not fight every battle because we're always got to keep moving this way. Where Steve yeah. Jobs is the guy who, you know, uh, doesn't want to wear the mask, you know, like when he's, you know, going through his cancer deal, doesn't want to wear the mask because he doesn't like the way it was constructed and is like, fine, I'm not going to wear it. And they're like, well, it's going to help you live longer. Well, I don't want to live longer if I have to wear it. I mean, like sometimes not seeing the general good. And I think innovator versus leader is kind of an interesting part. No, I I definitely think you're right. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of debate about whether Steve Jobs was a good leader or not. And he was clearly a very difficult person. A lot of the people in my set were not leaders by any stretch of the imagination. Marie Curie, I mean, she ended up being a leader because women wanted to role model after her. She did things. She broke a lot of molds for women, which was amazing. And she was a brilliant woman, but she was not a 
personable person, right? So it was would have been very difficult for her to be a leader. But what I what I focus on more in my book is not um, a lot of the traits of these innovators. It's about how to be innovative, not about how to be a leader. But there are lessons for leaders to think about what they're looking for in the people around them. About being tolerant, for instance, of weirdness, right? About realizing that sometimes that person who doesn't fit in is exactly the person who's going to come up with a really cool solution you hadn't thought of. So there's leadership lessons that are not about emulating the innovators, but really about how to identify and nurture them. Mm-hmm. I mean, taxi is a perfect example of that, right? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a creative <laughs> innovator. <laughs> but really doesn't fit in socially. <laughs> you are always like dragging them along. And uh. one of... One of <laughs> One of Melissa's points. One of Melissa's points that for business leaders to help their teams be more innovative is to encourage risk by lowering the price of failure. So <laughs> don't be hard so look. hard on some people, guys. Oh, dude. I'm but just you, kidding. But you also have to remember you work for somebody who has a uh, uh, terrible fear, fear of failure, almost to the point of like fucking stealing my breath. So, uh, I, you know, a lot of people have like succeed for greatness. <clears throat> I've succeeded at a sheer fucking uh, hatred and fear of failure. Like, okay. I don't like to fucking lose. And I don't care if it's checkers or business or whatnot. I mean, I, or chess. Uh, or Take chess. The- yeah, I fucking hate chess. Uh, but I'll pay, I'll, let's play dominoes. I'll pick you a game. So it, it comes down to this idea of uh, as long, like, um, you know, and I've, I've read extensively about different, you know, people and what their motivating factors for success. And everybody has their own deal. And not there's not a single person and I'm, I'd be actually really pretty interested uh, in your book just to hear like how they grew up I mean I, I always think like as, especially at like a young age like you know up into the age of maybe six or eight years old if there was something unique that happened to each individual that yeah. you could see like this one moment uh, set them on a trajectory for greatness Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I already talked about Thomas Edison what I didn't mention was that when he wasn't because he wasn't in school He actually had this incredible mother who was this strong, ambitious, loyal mother who had taught school before, and she ended up homeschooling him. And so she built this whole chemistry laboratory in their cellar, and he just did experiments all day in the cellar. So they sort of empowered him to become a scientist uh, on his own. And she also took him to the library and helped him read these incredibly advanced books. So uh, Thomas Edison being at home, having his own chemistry lab in his cellar and having this really powerful mother seemed to be a big thing for him. Nikola Tesla also described his mother as being completely his guiding influence, that she was inventive and smart, and she didn't have education because of the time when she grew up, but uh, she used to invent things all the time. Like she invented weaving machines and butter churns and, and all sorts of tools around the home. And she also had this incredible work ethic that she would get up at five o'clock in the morning and work until 11 p.m. every day. And Tesla wanted to be just like his mother. Uh, in Marie Curie's case, she was this brilliant, brilliant child who from a very early age was, was clearly very advanced. She had older siblings and she was reading well ahead of them. And so everybody knew that there was something a little unusual about this kid. But then, you know, when her mother died and also her sister died, her, her mother, her sister died, well, I think she was about six years old or eight years old. And her mother died when she was about 10. It, it caused her to retreat from the world and just devote herself entirely to schoolwork because schoolwork was a source of affirmation and achievement and joy for her so that she could sort of forget about her grief. So it became an escape mechanism for her. Um, And she ended up basically recreating that pattern her whole life of of sort of, of isolating herself and finding 
school to be her outlet or science to be her outlet. Uh, but another thing that happened with Marie Curie that was interesting is that is, is this interesting or is this boring to your audience? You no, I love it. This is awesome. Yeah. You okay. know what? I could care less what they find interesting because uh, I think this is amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so one, we only one, have maybe three. Yeah, listeners. yeah. There's so, only like two or three listeners, and I'm pretty sure there are our parents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So one of the interesting things about Marie Curie is that when she was growing up in the area we now call Poland, it had been taken over by Russia. And Russia was trying to eliminate all vestiges of Poland. So you couldn't teach Polish history. You couldn't use Polish literature in school. You couldn't use the Polish language in school. They were trying to basically Russify all of Poland. And initially, the people of Poland had wars and they fought back, but they got just clobbered. They were no match for the Russian army. And so at some point, they realized, we're not going to win this battle through military means. So the only way to preserve Poland is through science. We're going to have education, secret schools. We're going to teach people Polish history in church at night. And we're going to have Polish people become brilliant scientists. And that way we will preserve Poland. So Marie Curie gets involved in this thing called the Flying University that secretly teaches Polish women science, like at someone's house, a different house every night so that the Russian authorities can't find them. So she's around brave, smart women who are defying the law of the time, risking going to jail or being put to death. And this instills in her this very deep idealistic notion of, I'm going to fight for Poland and for women by being smart. And, Isn't that uh, where the uh, like the whole Polish thing about like Polish people being dumb wasn't that like part of their deal where they were like the the stereotype for that or am I missing that part? Like I, I don't know. I I really that I didn't encounter that in any of my readings about. Oh, I I just uh, like when you were bringing it up because I remember there was like a whole thing where I remember like you know there's always like the Polish jokes like uh, Polish yeah. people not being very smart. Like, and, East, and, East Coast Philly, Baltimore, any I guess. Uh, Polish immigrant centric. Yeah, right? was, yeah. So, that, yeah. so yeah. When oh, I lived yeah. in Philadelphia, they they always had all these kind of like Polish jokes, and the Poles were kind of like the like the dumbest people on it. And I always remember thinking like, where did that come from? And it came out of like I want to say out of something out of like the Russian propaganda. So I don't know. I didn't know if that was connected to it. So yeah, I don't know. You know, I think it, you know people talk uh, Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs. If you've read it, it's a or listen to it on audio. It's great. It's a great biography. He um, he realized he was adopted and he felt a lot of angst about it. But he also realized at some point early in his life that he was smarter than his parents. So he he realized he was special. Right. And that he could manipulate the world around him. And so that was that was a pretty crucial thing for his upbringing. Um, you know, Elon Musk is an interesting story. How much do you know about Elon Musk? Uh, superficial. Uh, yeah, not enough. So, so on the one side, you see him as this model for Tony Stark in Iron Man, because John Favreau says that he was the model for Tony Stark. But Elon Musk's upbringing could not have been less Tony Stark, right? He was, first of all, he was very small. When he was growing up, he was smaller than all the other kids. And he was super nerdy. And he used to get beaten up every single day in school, like ruthlessly bullied, like one point beaten unconscious. So he used to hide. Like his whole childhood was about hiding. And he would hide at home and he would read. And he would read Jules Verne and Tolkien and, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so for him, books and thinking and pr learning to program a computer at the age of 10, back when it was, you know, a, a Think about what computers were in the 80s and trying to program one. Yeah, My the God. punch card machines and shit. Yeah, oh, yeah. He, was a, he was a purely intellectual person. He wasn't like a big, strong, charismatic person. He found this as his outlet. 
Um, anyway. Well, I want to stick with children, and uh, you highlight some nurturing potential ways that we can potentially, uh, you know, build innovation in children. So I, I want to get into some of those kind of points that you 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 dive into to kind of share with our, our listeners that are parents, which is our parents. <laughs> <laughs> Tex made a joke with good timing. Uh, and that's all we have for today. No, wow, kidding. text it is funny. Hold on, let me get that in the calendar and I'll put that in there it's and in I'll mark notes. it. It's yeah, it's so can I say two things that changed yes, about please. my parenting after studying these innovators? I have, uh, I have two kids and one of them is definitely not a joiner. And I, you know, she would dress in black and not wash her hair and, and was always, would just never pile in with the other kids, just always sort of stood on the sides. And I felt a lot of uh, need to teach her to socialize. And I bought, you know, how to teach your kid to make friends. I, bought, I was, I, I felt really insecure about her feeling insecure. I thought that she needed to be popular and charismatic. And I was trying to push her to do group activities so she would get better at it. And after reading, after doing this, studying these people, I came to the conclusion that that wasn't the right thing to do. The right thing to do was to love her the way she was and to let her feel like that's a great way to be too, that not everybody has to be a joiner. You can be special and wonderful and excellent without being a joiner. And, and that if we learn to teach more kids to love themselves instead of trying to show them, it, you know, when I was trying to teach her to be a joiner, I was sending her the message that she wasn't okay the way she was. And that was a mistake on my part. So I really dialed it back and I let her be who she is. And she's doing great in school and she's actually a very confident person. So that is way more important than, you know, her ability to, uh, to, to be uh, a joiner. The other thing that um, I really discovered, and it's a little thing that makes such a huge difference, and it's going to make a difference also with athleticism. So I think that, that you might find this valuable. I'm in. Uh, it has to do with self-efficacy and how we build self-efficacy in people. And maybe you already know this, but in academia, we tend to not know it. One of the things you don't want to do is rescue people. If there's any chance someone is going to get through the challenge on their own or to solve the problem on their own, you want to just say, hey, I have faith in you. You can do it. Just keep at it. You'll get it right? Like we tend to want to jump in and say, let me help you. I'll help you do that, which is great for social bonding, right? It helps build this, you know, ties between you and let people trust you. And that's great. But it also at the same time can undermine someone's sense of self-efficacy because a lot of the time, if you let them struggle with it a little bit, they're going to get it on their own and they're going to come away feeling like I can solve things. If I stick with them, if I just stick with it, I can overcome obstacles on my own. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I was taught, uh, or I was told a story, I think, by my grandmother. Or, or uh, So my family's from Canada. They grew up as farmers. And I remember my grandmother told me a story about when they were kids, uh, the chickens had eggs. And they stood around, like, watching the eggs. And as the eggs started to hatch, they saw one that cracked. And uh, she said that they went over as kids, and they, like, started kind of, like, cracking it, cracking it, opening it, and trying to, like, help the, uh, the little chicken come out. And so as they cracked it, they, like, kind of peeped off, peeped off. All of a sudden, the thing broke through, and the chicken got out, walked around, and ended up falling down and dying. And they were like really mortified, but that they turned around and all the other chickens that have fought their way out of their shells were, were fine and they ended up living. And I was like, she told me the story and I, she's like, do you know what that means? And I'm like, 
I don't know, chickens die. Like, I don't know, I'm a little <laughs> kid. And she's like, no, don't ever let anybody, uh, like, break away your shell. Push out of your own shell. Don't ever let yeah. anybody help you. And it was like this analogy that wow. uh, I always thought, like, and it was just this little farm analogy about, like, you know, don't help. And so I think for my kids all the time, uh, am I letting them push out of their shell or am I cracking the shell to help them get out? And I've thought about it my entire life. Uh, since I was a little kid, she told me this story. And um, just it's been something that, you know, and I, and I tell the girls all the time, I'm like, I need you to break out of your shells. I need you guys to push. I can show you, but at the end of the day, I'm never going to pull your shells away. Like, I'll do something with you. If you want help with your school, I'll get my own piece of paper and we'll do it together, but I'm never going to help yours. So like guitar, like I'm teaching my little girls guitar. So I have a guitar and we'll sit and we'll play together and I'll be like, look at my fingers and then they have to do it. And then I take them to, to lessons and then I kind of watch and like the teacher writes it down and then I'll get them home and I bring it home and uh, I'd like do the lessons with them. But that age old deal of like, let somebody break through the shell because the idea is that the chicken has to be strong enough to crack out of the shell. And when they're strong enough, they'll break. But if you help them, they won't gain the strength they need to continue to live. So you know, that's a little bit of analogy. That you got that, that lesson so early and that's such a beautiful analogy. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's like a ton of weird analogies and these guys have heard it. And so probably people on this podcast that like I, that I was told as a young kid, uh, that have literally stuck with me through my whole life. And like now as a parent, I had these opportunities more to kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now they're much more meaningful, but like, as he's that I've told, I, I got three kids, uh, Luke and Tex have yet to have the wonderful experience of being a parent. Mm. Like, yeah, no problem. I got a system. Uh, I'm, uh, I have twin girls that are little, uh, that are six, and then I got a little boy who's two. And having twin girls uh, is by far the most interesting experiment on the planet because they could not be more different, but yet so uh, so fiercely connected that like I, I can't imagine two human beings. But I'm pretty sure like uh, their emotional connection is beyond anything I've ever seen. Like yeah. it's 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 pretty amazing. Like it's. You know, uh, yeah. You'll have to watch out. Having twin girls who are six and a two-year-old boy means that they're going to be intervening for him all the time. So you'll have to keep an eye on them that they let him break out of his shell. Uh, they do. Uh, he's pretty good. Like, uh, um, yeah, it's it, it's pretty interesting. Like, they don't henpeck him at all. And uh, I and I, I tell them that constantly. I'm like, he are, he has one mother. He doesn't need three mothers. <laughs> and I try to tell them that all the time. And they, you know, they they're pretty good with it. But uh, he's uh, he's pretty feisty. Like um, like runs around and tries to like knock them down and battle with yeah. them. And they fight. So it's uh, it, it's a good. Like you guys have seen it. Uh, but no, it's it, yeah, parenting. Um, like, as you know, as, as a parent, like, uh, has completely changed my perspective on just about everything. Like I, yeah. I look at like things that maybe I like to think of my parents, like, ah, oh, that wasn't a good deal or that was kind of fucked. And then I think about it and I'm like, oh, at the end of the day, like, I think, uh, you know, you have to empower people, not help them. And I think we've gotten into a, a place where people want to just do everything. Uh, yeah. you know, like the helicopter parenting and all these other things where like the parents are going to fix all the, all the problems for me. And I remember my mom being like, you made this problem. You got to fix it. There's mm -hmm. nothing I can do. Yeah. yeah. Go out and fix your own fucking problems. You know, my, when I was four, uh, I asked my mother if she would put on Mr. Rogers neighborhood on the television, which was like my favorite show at the time. These, these two other guys here, probably too young to have ever no, seen I that remember. show. Yeah. yeah. Be my neighbor. <laughs> and instead of putting it on, she tossed a, a reader's guide, a TV guide towards me and said, figure out how to put it on yourself. And at first I was completely flummoxed by that. Like, how could my mother possibly expect me to read the TV guide and figure out how to put on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? But I picked it up and I spent a while and I, I figured out what Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, what channel it was, and I put it on. 
and it changed me. It changed me from that point forward because I, I remember in high school one time the accelerator cable broke on my VW bug and I didn't have any money to get it fixed. So I found a book that was how to change an accelerator huh. cut cable on a VW bug and I climbed under there and I and I I, I did it myself and um, it it became like a big part of who I am. Yeah. The, the idea that, uh, um, you know, and we run into the, I mean, I, I personally run into this, you know, Hey, we need to get something done or something and we'll have somebody come out and either give us a bid or this. And I'll be like, no, I'll do it myself. And we end up doing it. And, uh, it just kind of it probably through hell or high water or stupidity. <laughs> sometimes we, you know, we accomplish some things, but I think, uh, you can, learning new tasks and learning new skills and finding different ways to apply your information and knowledge, uh, you know, increases growth as an individual. And I think we're so quick to just pick up the phone and call the expert mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you have to be the expert or more importantly, you're like, I realize you might be able to do it better than me, but the information and like the life lesson of being able to put this thing together is something that, you know, I know for us, especially as a team, like the three guys who are sitting here, like the place you can see if you could, we'll, we'll kind of show you, like we have uh, 2,700 square feet of cedar ceiling and we nailed in most of it and like kind of like did this on a on a sky lift i mean it's pretty amazing but like i'll tell you this it was uh, an awesome experience that i would never trade for anything just for the hilarity of actually having to drive uh 20 foot like uh what do you call those uh scissor, scissor lift. lift yeah like racing it around this place yeah. and trying to scare the shit out of town OSHA approved and, yeah and after all that work of putting in that cedar ceiling it's going to be a real shame if it's not there by the end of the day because of your gas heater uh ah. actually the heater died it, 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 it <laughs> ran out of juice that's why you saw me jump up and turn it off so yeah we're totally inverted in the save but uh no i mean it, it's uh like it's pretty interesting that you could take people across time like i always wonder if um you know like how accurate are the historical you know biographies or this i mean uh you know and it seems like by setting the criteria of having enough first-hand accounts that you can start kind of gathering your own information yeah. i think that's yeah. pretty fascinating you know one of the things i try to do in the book in my field Everybody gets accused of bias, right? Everything is a, a, a so much of our field is about avoiding researcher bias or proving that there was bias. So one of the main things that I tried to do was provide enough firsthand quotes from letters right, that people wrote themselves in their own hand that you can draw your own conclusion about what that person was like. Right? You can read what Marie Curie wrote to Pierre Curie or what she wrote to her cousin or to her friends or her to her daughter, and you can form your own assessment of what this woman was like in her own words and. Uh, and then it doesn't matter what I think. So I, I want to stick with that. Uh, you said bias, and I want to have the opportunity to highlight kind of your side hustle with with Alzheimer's and diabetes. <laughs> mm. So, and uh, I had the fortune of Googling and doing some research and found your interview with David Perlmutter, who was one of the people yeah, we alumni have on our of Power Athlete Radio. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the number one episode of yeah the most two of all time yeah the most downloaded one i think is promoter wow. so um kind of speak to us about that because you went into uh, just all forms of different research from an yeah. outsider's perspective and you found yeah. some connections that few had seen before yeah um and how that happened is maybe just a, a little bit evidence of how obsessive i i can personally be but i had a friend who had uh, multiple sclerosis and she was pretty advanced far along and I was really worried about her. She actually has since passed. And when she, during that time, I started reading everything I could read on neurodegeneration and also on autoimmune disorders. And, and I'm a consumer of reading material. I mean, I read the back of the shampoo bottle when I'm in the shower. I just have to read all the time. So I was reading all of these articles that came across on neurodegeneration and on, on autoimmune. And because of that particular combination, I started 
reading stuff about Alzheimer's and about diabetes. And what I saw was that there were some conflicting reports, conflicting conclusions, and they were radically conflicting. Like there was a group of people who thought we should administer uh, intranasal insulin to people to help prevent Alzheimer's. And there were people who thought that having chronically elevated insulin is what causes Alzheimer's. And those two things were so diametrically opposed that first of all, it meant that if you, if you bought into one, it, if, you, if you bought into the wrong one, you were going to really screw over a bunch of people. You were going to treat them with something that was going to accelerate their Alzheimer's. So it was a, to me, it seemed like an important problem to solve. But it also, because I'm an empirical researcher, seemed like clearly a tractable problem to solve. Like I ought to be able to look at the data and figure out how you came to these opposing conclusions. So I started hunting it down. And I'm a little bit like a, a bloodhound on a, on a problem like that. And I read all of the data and all of the studies and I called labs and found out what kind of enzymes they used and tracked down the research designs. And in the end, I figured out how they had come to these uh, seemingly opposing conclusions. And it was in fact, because of research design error, it was a pretty simple research design error. And once I had sorted that out and I contacted some Alzheimer's researchers and I said, look, here's why you came to this conclusion because you had done these things in your research design that excluded the possibility of realizing there was a relationship between diabetes and Alzheimer's, uh, they, they said, you should write it up. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not an Alzheimer's researcher. And they said, it looks to me like you're an Alzheimer's researcher, you know? So I ended up reading about a thousand articles and doing a big meta review of a, of a hundred different studies that showed this path from, uh, Basically, chronically elevated blood sugar leads to chronically elevated blood insulin. Uh, when you have chronically elevated blood insulin, it competes for this enzyme called insulin-degrading enzyme. And insulin-degrading enzyme, it's called insulin-degrading enzyme because the first thing we knew it broke down is insulin. But it actually has a bunch of jobs. It breaks down a lot of other clumpy proteins. And one of the clumpy proteins it also breaks down is amyloid beta in the brain. So if you have chronically elevated insulin, it never gets around to breaking down amyloid beta. And we've shown this in lots of different uh, animal models and in petri dishes and in human studies. So, so the, and this is why uh, people with diabetes have about twice the rate of Alzheimer's. People with diabetes treated with insulin have about four times the rate of, of Alzheimer's. So, so giving someone with diabetes insulin is like throwing fuel on the fire. Well, what's uh, pretty fascinating because they know that like, you know, type 2 diabetes, as we've said, is a disease of carbohydrates. So, I mean, you know, but yet you think like and then uh, in our society, everything's good or bad. You know, carbs are bad. Insulin's bad. And it's like, dude, uh, insulin's a transport hormone. And at certain points, you know, it goes up and down and as, you know, it, should. as it should. But uh, chronically high insulin leads to other problems. I mean, I remember years ago hearing somebody relate uh, Alzheimer's to type 3 diabetes. And I thought yeah. like, uh, I don't know if I buy that extensively because I've also met, uh, you know, the, pretty interesting. The, uh, somebody made an uh, interesting observation, and I, and I was never able to really prove or disprove this, but they found that uh, people that were diabetic that, uh, you know, tended to be uh, real heavy, like they tended to gain weight from, you know, excess insulin. The people that were diabetic that did not gain weight uh, and stayed relatively thin ended up developing Alzheimer's. And I thought that that was a pretty interesting observation in that oh, some that way. And, uh, and and I, I've never been able to find any proof or any testing or anything from it. But it was just one of those interesting observations that the people that were diabetic that were able to stay thin tended to 
get Alzheimer's, the people that tended to get fat didn't. And I yeah. always thought like, huh, like, is that the way that the body's processing insulin? Is it eating it up in a different way? Um, but no, I had seen the, the research that they said that people with diabetes had a greater rate of chance of Alzheimer's and the people that ended up winning on going on exogenous insulin ended up having a much greater rate. So yeah, pretty bad, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty terrible. You know, I, um, for a while there, I was on a mission to get rid of things like, you know, those, uh, am I allowed to say product names or is that going to get you into trouble? No, you can say whatever you want. Okay, you know those naked juices or Adwala juices? Oh, yeah. 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 Like they look like they're really healthy. They have a picture of broccoli on the front and stuff. They're not. You they're turn not. them over, they'll have 53 grams of sugar in a bottle. I yeah, bought one. With, I bought one. With, uh, with, like, with like two servings. And you're like, wow, that has 48 grams of sugar. And there's two <laughs> servings in this 12-ounce portion. And you're thinking to yourself, you're like, God, that's 100 grams of sugar. And it's $9. Yeah, and, and you're thinking, and you're like, okay, so the one good thing in, about eating fruits and vegetables is the idea of fiber. So by fiber. consuming those, you get fiber. And everybody knows if you have fiber in the gut, it slows the absorption of sugar outside. So it you know, ends up uh, keeping blood sugar more constant. If you yeah. remove the fiber... It's like dropping a fucking nuclear bomb of sugar and all of a sudden you, exactly. you like go test your, uh, you know, your glucose and it fucking shoots through the roof to the point where all of a sudden it's like over 140 and your eyesight goes down or your eyesight gets shitty because anything over yeah. 140 of degeneration That's of the optical how you know nerve, it's good. all of a sudden you're like, I can't see it's so high in sugar. Like it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, like this is the stuff we deal with on a single well, daily basis in terms time. of like, you, you know, and the theme of this podcast is called battle the bullshit, which is excellent that you're on it because you are, you know, battling, uh, you know, preconceived notions of bullshit. Um, but the idea is that man, like these are, are small things that are just observational to us that we think like you look at, you're like, dude, you would consume a hundred grams of sugar for most people. I'm eating healthy. Yeah, they think right. that it's healthy. It looks like it's healthy. It's actually designed to look healthy, which is misleading. I mean, someone should sue them. Someone should mm-hmm. sue them for making it look like it's a health drink. But but the problem comes down to in the USDA and the way our government's set up, they still have their you know food pyramid chart with sixty percent carbohydrate, and carbohydrates aren't the problem. But you know. God knows you recommend saturated fat or some form of animal-based protein, and now all of a sudden you're fucking destroying the environment, even though we have shown pretty extensively that pre-Columbian era there were five times more ruminants. Ruminant. Ruminant animals ruminant. on the ruminant animals than there are present on the population today. I mean, uh, you know, as we uh, people don't always like to hear this, but uh, there were you know something like you know fifty five hundred million heads of buffalo that roamed you know the buffalo roam in this country before you know we decided to get rid of the red man by it's fucking systematically of, killing them off. It's a lot of buffalo. We're so. getting really controversial now, but can I <laughs> can I um, can I bring up something that that Dr. Perlman might have brought up? Sure. And that is something like a third of the population in the U.S. is pre-diabetic and has no idea because there's no symptom. Yeah. Like over 80 million people are pre-diabetic and have no idea. And pre-diabetes is when that fire of Alzheimer's starts. And that is a long, slow burn that once it gets to some levels, you can't stop it. You can't turn it back. So people should get tested right away. They should get an A1C test to make sure to, to, to know where they stand on that. Well, I mean, my contention is there is no such thing as pre-diabetes. You're either diabetic or you're not. It's kind of like being pregnant. Like, I don't know how you could be like pre-pregnant. Like, it, uh, like if your numbers are within a certain realm, uh, you have the opportunity 
opportunity to change this through diet and exercise, exercise and all yeah. these other you know mitigating <clears throat> factors. But if you're within these ranges and like so, uh, you probably go back and research this. But before there was no like kind of pre situation. Thirty forty years ago, when they looked at diabetic and they looked at the numbers, like this pre diabetes thing has only been something that they've shown within the last you know mm-hmm. bunch of years. Well, is it intended to be like a risk factor, like a measurable well, risk factor? Well, like if you look at uh, this is pretty interesting too. If you look at like the medical books from like even 25, 30, 40 years ago, uh, they would call anything over, I think the age of 28 was a geriatric pregnancy. And now all of a sudden they changed this, you know, for like the medical thing. And now a geriatric pregnancy is like in like the forties and like late forties. If you go back and you look 30, 40, 50 years yeah, ago, sure. like they didn't recommend anybody get pregnant over the age of 28, you know, 30 years old was considered an old pregnancy. And now it's like women are having, pre- you know, uh, children in their you know forties and fifties. Yeah, sure. And now that's, you know, even though the risk factors go up, but they've completely gone and changed these things mm-hmm. because they have to adjust with the times. So I think the pre-diabetes things kind of, uh, to me, it's either well, you're either in or out. I don't know what you mean by that. What I mean is that if you're, if you do an A1C test, which basically it's great because you don't have to fast and it'll look at like the last three months of your blood sugar and give you an index that kind of captures the last three months of your blood sugar level. If that's over 0.57, I mean 5.7, you're, you're technically pre-diabetic and your doctor's not going to give you a diabetes diagnosis and he's not going to prescribe you any medication for that, but you have hype, you have elevated insulin, which means you're starting that amyloid buildup process in your brain. That's what you want to avoid. Like I think everyone should get that test. It costs like you can pick up one at Walgreens for like 30 bucks and find out if your blood sugar is above 5.7. If it's above 5.7, you probably need to change your lifestyle. Yeah. If, but even like that lifestyle, like, if you, I don't know that this would be our podcast population, but maybe it's somebody they know. Uh, very sedentary, no exercise, lots of snack food and fast food, life of convenience and laziness. That's kind. Well, that's what's going to lead you into that, for the most part, into that risk factor, right? One of the bigger uh, issues for the risk factor goes back to lack of sleep. And then you look at like cortisol levels and A1C, you talk about inflammation within mm-hmm. the system. Yeah. Uh, so when you were talking about like these innovators not being great sleepers, like my dad is uh, never slept more than four hours. And at, at any point in his life, wow. um, so and uh, now, was he tired? Uh, I, what was interesting is my dad would come home, uh, eat dinner, and then he would hang out in his lazy boy. Uh, like he would sit down about ten o'clock and uh, or nine o'clock, and he would kind of sit there and we'd hang out or whatever, and he would literally fall asleep. Uh, for about, you know, two hours, he would get up and he'd work a little bit and then he would go to bed and then he would wake up about two or three hours later. And, uh, that was pretty much like he slept in these little, like two and three hour shifts and then he would work and, and maybe four or five hours total his whole life. And, um, and I always remember thinking like, fuck, this has got to be killing his A1C and his blood sugar. And his blood sugar was always high. And, um, he, you know, didn't like to exercise, didn't really ever care, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so I, I, it's, yeah, I, I think lack of sleep is kind of an interesting one. I know that people, yeah. like you said, people that tend to sleep more have better blood work than people that don't, regardless of, you know, that it might not be a key factor mm-hmm. for innovation, but we have no ability to go back and get blood work on Thomas Edison. Yeah. And so th- exercise totally regulates your insulin, right? It just yeah. makes you more insulin sensitive, which keeps your insulin at an even level and... Well, and uh, I don't know if you've done any of the research on metformin, uh, like the metformin is super fascinating in that it's, um, you know, they're giving it to people as, uh, you know, that are diabetic to help them, you know, create greater insulin sensitivity in the cells. Mm-hmm. But actually it kind of works in a kind of an interesting kind of way. So, 
it's in trials right now as an anti-aging uh, yep. medicine. Yep. It's, there's two clinical trials testing it as anti-aging. Some people think, though, that metformin could also cause cancer. So it's, it's Well, but it's used as a cancer drug when it's missed with DS, uh, DS or DCA, where they'll mix it, and it actually uh, has been shown to kill cancer. So it's a cancer fighter. So, hmm. I, like, this is where things get confusing because there's yeah. somebody saying it causes cancer, and then you have well, people that are actually using it in cancer treatments. And if you Google, there's not one disease actually called no. cancer. Cancer is, is just a yeah, big like group if you a lot of if you go Google uh, metformin and DCA and uh, like that, if you Google those, it comes up and like the amount of uh, of, of information that's coming up is it being and actually has been shown to increase the effects of chemotherapy. So if you're taking metformin with you know chemotherapy. It's it basically will improve uh, you know something how it yeah. works. So now it's uh, it's fascinating how when you and you can go down the rabbit hole and the problem like you said it comes down to like there's people on both sides and the problem is is that uh, everybody's trying to be right instead of trying to figure out what's the best course of action. Yeah, yeah. So. I think this is yep. this has been amazing talk, and I wish uh, it could go on another hour. Dude. I want to read the book. I'm, yeah. I'm really jealous I, that yeah, that it. text it, text is the only one that has the book because now I want to read it. But Melissa, so th- when when this comes out, listen, ladies and gentlemen, I've never seen text so giddy over a book. I mean, it's like you know, it's just, uh, he skipped here like a young schoolgirl yeah, almost, just skipping, holding the book. You guys, look. Yeah, there was know? a bouquet of flowers, high high socks, ringlets in his hair. Yeah, yeah, ringlets in his hair. In, but where they we're going to have links in the show notes to deep link to your book, ladies and oh, gentlemen. Thank you. It, you got to pick this up. And Melissa, hopefully this isn't the last time we talk, and we can we can expand this conversation even further, uh, and we can connect after you know you go on this world tour. Uh, um, you know, having coffee with Elon Musk. And, yeah, and you just, know, you know, kicking kicking up and talking about you know what's next for SpaceX and all that stuff. So yeah, well, I'd love to come back. This is really fun. Are you ever out in the Austin area? Yeah, I'm actually coming out. I'm giving a talk at South by Southwest. Oh, Whoa. we're there. We're in. We're in. We're gonna make Are some you signs. Be there? We will be there. If yeah, you're we'll, speaking, we'll we be will there. now. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. So, but thank you, and Power Athlete Radio. Thank you again for listening, Mom and Dad, uh, Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> McCloak, and Mr. and Mrs. Wellborn. It was. Uh, we'll see you next week at dinner, Sunday dinner at John's house. But uh, and Melissa, thank you. Safe travels, and and we wish you the best. Thank and you so much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. It is no surprise that Power Athlete Radio is listed in the Men's Health Magazine Top 5 Success-Themed Podcasts. With highbrow guests like Melissa Schilling, we continue to impress ourselves and hopefully impress you with our elevating content. Be sure to get Melissa's book straight from Amazon. Just search the title, Quirky, The Remarkable Story of the Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Change the World. Until next time... Bye!